0: jerusalem he gathers the exiles of israel he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds he determines the number of stars and calls them each by name great is our lord and mighty in power his understanding has no limit the lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground sing to the lord with grateful praise make music to our god on the harp He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Exalt the Lord, Jerusalem. Praise your God, Zion. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his command to the earth, his word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. And today's New Testament reading comes from Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 12 to 17, and can be found on page 1182 of the Church Bibles. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us tonight to hear your word and then go out this week and do your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I mentioned in the monthly newsletter, which you all read, (laughs) what? You didn't read it? Bev, do we want to know? Where's Bev? Bev, do we want to know? Do we don't want to know? Okay, we won't ask for a show of hands. Well, I'll just proceed. As I mentioned in the newsletter that you all read, uh, we're going to take a break from our sermon series on the seven churches of Revelation, and just for a week, and consider this week God's word as given to us in the, Psalms, in the Psalms. And this is something we're going to do from time to time. From time to time, we'll explore a psalm. And I would say we're going to do it for good reason. The Psalms are a wonderful resource, wonderful resource for pastoral sermons, sermons that speak not only to who God is and what He's all about, but also to speak to the believer's experience of God, Uh, whether this be an experience of grace or guilt, praise or lament, gratitude or grievance, praise, or sorry, trust, or doubt. It's good stuff for us to reflect on, I think. Good stuff that, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, God has given us for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, so as we prepare prepare now to dive into Psalm 147, let me ask you this. Does anyone here at home or at work or at school or even at church feel that they're wearing too many hats? The students say, well, what do you mean? I'm a student. That's all I have to do, right? I don't have any other hats. Uh, Anyone? Yeah, a few people. Okay, right? Uh, Let me explain. In case you've never heard that, I know that's an English phrase or maybe, no, it's, yeah, English American phrase wearing hats. Let me just explain what wearing hats uh, is about, just in case you don't know. Um, So a hat, as many of you know, is an identifier or indicator of your job. Uh, A pilot wears a pilot's hat. A firefighter wears a firefighter's hat. A London bobby wears a London bobby's hat. A beekeeper wears a beekeeper's hat. So hats, the hats we wear, can often say a lot about the jobs we do. So for this reason, at least in the English language, uh, hats have become synonymous with the duties we perform, the responsibilities we carry out, the work we do, whether or not we wear hats for that work. So again, I ask the question, does anyone here feel like they're just wearing too many hats these days? Yeah? Okay. Okay. So let me just give you a couple examples, and then we'll jump into the psalm. Uh, if you have kids, some of you have kids, especially if you have kids, you don't just wear the hat of mom or, or dad. If you've got kids, you wear the hat eventually of taxi driver, tutor, uh, trainer, athletic trainer, right? Uh, you wear the personal assistant hat, the university entrance coach hat, the event planner hat, the nurse hat, the therapist hat, the cook hat, the gardener hat, the housekeeper hat, uh, the sanitation engineer hat, the garbage person, right? Uh, and of course, as any parent will attest to, you wear the bankomat mat hat, right? The ATM hat. Uh, been there, done that. Still doing that, by the way. If they're on video, I'm still doing that, right? All right. Okay. In mat work, we can also wear lots of hats as well. If you're a manager, for example, in a company, uh, maybe you have to wear the playground supervisor hat at your work, uh, the kindergarten teacher hat at your work, the jockey hat, right? Motivational speaker hat, the agony ant hat. Anyone familiar with that, agony ant, right? I think that's a Britishism, right? Okay, Uh psychologist hat, right? Referee hat, that's one you're going to wear as a manager at workplace. So again these hats speak to the roles we play in life the many roles we play in life none of us is just one thing we are all many things we wear many hats and play many roles but that said that said we should admit that whatever we whatever hat we wear whatever roles we play in life they're nothing compared to the many roles God plays, and metaphorically speaking, the many hats God wears. He's got us completely beat in this regard. The diversity of his hats, the breadth of his hats, awesome to consider. So let's do that now. A little bit different of a sermon tonight. We're just going to consider the diversity of God's hats, uh, the breadth of his roles in our lives. And in this, I hope what we're going to find tonight is renewed occasion for praise and thanksgiving to him. So I should explain that this whole business of hats and rolls, the reason I'm bringing it up is because I think this is really what the psalmist has in mind as he writes Psalm 147. Um, Of course, this is a psalm to the one God of Israel. This is not a psalm to multiple gods. But it is a psalm of praise to this one God in all his various and sundry roles. This is not just a psalm of praise to God the creator, or God the savior, or God the creator, God the healer, God the lawgiver, God the comforter. It's a psalm to all of those roles, all of those hats. It's a psalm of praise, again, to the only one true God. So now, before we look at the first verse of the psalm, let me just mention a challenge that presents itself to both the preacher and the listener uh, to Psalm 147. The preacher's dream, as you approach a text, the, the preacher's dream with respect to a psalm or any passage, for that matter. A preacher's dream is a passage which divides itself up nicely into points, Right? So, for example, with 147, it would have been so nice for the psalmist, for my benefit, uh, to have separated his praise for the different roles of gods into very distinct sections. Uh, the first section of the psalm, for example, could have been praise to God, the creator. The second section could have been a praise to God, the healer. And third section, praise to God, the savior. Psalmist could have done this, and it would have made my job as a preacher and your jobs as listeners much easier. Instead, what the psalmist has done here is he has woven all these different roles in and through each other in this psalm. They're like best analogy I give is some of you might have seen a reed basket. You have reeds woven in and through each other to make a basket. That's kind of what this psalm is. A reed basket woven, uh, the reeds woven together with the rolls and the hats of God. So it makes it hard to listen to, perhaps, makes it hard to preach. But as we'll find out later, the psalmist weaving these rolls in and through each other, it serves the purpose of the Holy Spirit, I believe, in this respect. How that is, we're going to find out in a bit. So sit tight for that. Let's though start at the beginning of the psalm in order to explore the psalm. And you'll definitely, if you have the, uh, the piece of paper with the text out, uh, you want to look at that. And if you have a Bible with you, look at that as well. So the, the psalm is, is bookended with this praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So obviously what we're dealing with is a psalm of praise here. Praise the Lord. Uh, most psalms of praise are about celebrating who God is and what he's all about. And this one is no exception. After a call to praise in verse 1, how good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise him. We find the psalmist then celebrating God, celebrating him and his actions, God and his roles too, right? So verse 2, we see God celebrates the faithful restorer of his people. This is what he says. This is what the psalmist says about uh, God as the faithful restorer of his people. He says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. Okay, so anyone know the backstory to this? This talk about exiles and restoring them? All right, in case you're hazy on that, let me give you the backstory. The backstory to this little expression of praise is that God's people, the Israelites, had been conquered by the Babylonians. And they had been exiled to Babylon in order to be slaves. But God didn't forget his people there in Babylon, He brought them back home home again. He restored them to their homeland. And so in this way, he provided for them as a community. He provided for them as a people. He gave them a place to call home again. That is what he is being thanked for here, that he gave them a home, restored their homeland to them. But as we'll see now in verse 3, as we look ahead, he provided not only a place of dwelling for his people, he provided for their emotional and spiritual needs as well. In verse 3, we read this. He, God, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. So this is God as the healer of hearts. And the love he showed by bringing his people back to their homeland, back into his presence, back into his grace, back into his favor. This went a long ways in healing the emotional and spiritual wounds that his people had experienced when he, God, had allowed them to be taken, carted off to Babylon to be slaves. So once feeling totally abandoned by God, his people now felt accepted by God again, loved by God in his favor. And this healed their hearts. So God's role here as a healer of broken hearts has a relational intimacy about it. It's all about the closeness he feels to his people. It's all about the closeness his people feel to him. Which, of course, fits perfectly with the next role we see him praise for. And that's in verse 4. Take a look. His role of star creator and star namer. He determines the number of stars. He calls them each by name. So, I don't know if you caught it. Sometimes irony is hard to catch. But I was being a little ironic there when I said it fit perfectly with the role he played before. In a sense, I don't think these two roles that we've just talked about go well at all together. In my puny human mind, please no amens. In my puny human mind, a being who has a capacity for such relational intimacy as God does with his people, would not naturally be then a being who can also speak the vast universe into existence and possess infinite knowledge of its content. One role, after all, is about being near and by. The other role is about being above and beyond. One role is about gentleness and tenderness. The other role is about power and might. One necessitates a light touch. The other necessitates brute force. To be one and the same, to be able to be intimate healer and awesome creator. Analogy here. Uh, And by the way, I like to give analogies. Most of them are bad, bad analogies. But almost all analogies are by nature bad. So let's just see if this one fits. To be intimate healer and awesome creator, it's a bit like being a celebrated ballet dancer, able at the same time to be an Olympic weightlifter. Wouldn't you like to see that, right? Ballet dancer, weightlifter, all in one. The two, of course, aren't a natural pairing. And by the way, whenever I mention something like that, almost every single time someone comes up to me after the service and says, I know someone who's a ballet dancer and a weightlifter. So I just appreciate you didn't shout that out during the service, okay? You can tell me afterward in a hushed tone if you like, but all right. It's not a natural pairing, right? It's not a natural pairing. But then, of course, God isn't natural, is he? meaning he's not of nature. He's divine. He's above and beyond nature. And as such, the rules of what goes together in a single being, they don't apply to him, which is why he can be, in fact, an intimate healer of souls and hearts and the awesome creator and namer of stars. The next two verses, once again, echo this juxtaposition of the vastness of his capabilities with the closeness of his concerns. Verse 6, great is our Lord, mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. So here again, we learn that God is mighty in power and limitless in understanding, above and beyond God. But yet, yet, the lowest of the low in society, he's concerned about giving them justice in the face of their oppressors. He goes from naming the stars in the universe to caring for the least, the last, and the lost on earth. Just like that. All in a day's work for the great God of the universe and for the good God of his people. The psalmist continues on like this for the whole rest of the psalm, giving praise to God for all the different roles he plays and all the different capabilities he possesses. And all these add up to a God who provides for his people in so many different ways. Look now at verse 8. See if you can figure out what the psalmist is saying here with regard to God's provision or what he's providing. Verse 8. He covers the sky with clouds, supplies the earth with rain, and he makes grass grow in the hills. Right. So God the provider of rain. God the provider for the natural world. And then look at verse 9. What is the psalmist saying here that God is providing? Pretty simple. Provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. So again, he's caring for his creation, caring for his creation. Verse 12 through 14 is a little trickier. Take a look at those verses and and try to think to yourself, what is God providing in in this case, in these verses? This isn't quite as easy as the other ones. And I'll read it in just a bit. I'll give you a second to look at it. What's his provision here? Let me read it. Extol the Lord Jerusalem. Praise your God, Zion. He strengthens the bars of your gates, blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with finest wheat. So this is about God's provision of peace, of protection, of property for his people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. And then he goes on another, another role of God, another way of providing. Verse 16 through 18, look what the psalmist says there. Just read through that on your own. What is God providing here? What role is he playing here? What hat is he wearing? Well, it's really God the provider of seasons, right? For seasons and his creation. You see the winter talked about here. And then perhaps surprisingly, because a lot of the stuff has had a natural creational bent to it so far. In verse 19, we we see the psalmist go a little bit different direction in what he praises God for providing. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They don't know his laws. So this is God's provision of his law, of his commands, of how to live. It's a a way that God has provided for his people to live graciously and wisely. So he's given them instructions on living that fit with who they are and who they're supposed to be and how he created them to be. Okay, so long story short, many kinds of provisions here for which praise is justified. The recipient, though, of the praise is just one. Many kinds of provisions, one provider, and that is the one true God. I said earlier in the sermon that for the preacher, this psalm can be a bit challenging, and for the listener, this psalm is challenging. Again, please, no amen right there. Uh, Reserve your amen for later there. Um, It's because the... Psalmist here, he doesn't keep these roles of God distinct from each other. Again, we've got a lot of this going on in the psalm. He's woven these roles of God in and through each other, like reeds in a basket, making them difficult for us to pull apart and get at, perhaps. As I thought about this, though, as I thought about this, eventually it made perfect sense to me. It made perfect sense to me that the psalmist wrote here what he wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It makes perfect sense, his weaving of God's roles in and through each other, because this actually reflects the nature of God, doesn't it? God is not divisible by his roles, ultimately speaking. The reality is that his different hats are really, in the end, just one hat. The one true God hat. We can make distinctions in the roles, certainly. No problem. But we really can't divide them totally. Just because in all these roles, he's God, and they work together. It's part of who he is. No pulling these roles apart. Let me explain this when I say you can't pull these roles apart from each other. I think you'll agree, or at least you'll you um you'll recognize it from what scripture teaches us that God is a savior, right? God is a savior. One of his roles is definitely that of a savior. But tell me this, why has God saved? Why is he a savior? Why is he a savior? What prompted him to become a savior? Well, it was his love, right? For his creation And his creatures. The reason he loved the world so much, he sent his only son into the world to save it, was because he had created it. And the people in it. His desire to save then, his desire to save, is born in part, at least, out of his ability to create. So again, you see, you can't, pull these roles completely apart, his roles of savior and creator. You can't pull them apart any more than you can divide the many roles involved in being a parent. In the case of being a parent, these roles are just part of being a loving, caring parent. In the case of God being God, these roles are just all part of the one true God of heaven and earth. You you can't pull them apart. Nowhere, though, Nowhere do we see this indivisibility, this indivisibility of God's roles more clearly than in his greatest revelation, Jesus Christ. In what we read from Colossians this evening, we see that it's it's no coincidence to observe Christ's different roles here. Once again, woven together, just as the psalmist has woven together God the Father's Rules. In Colossians, we see Christ's role of creator highlighted. And then right after, just a couple of verses later, we see Christ's role as Savior highlighted. Verse 16, I'm looking at, if you have the text in front of you. Speaking about Christ the Creator. The Apostle Paul says this in Colossians 1:16. He says, For by him, which is Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Christ the creator. But then shortly after, verse 19, says this. Paul says this about Christ. And it's about Christ our Savior. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by creating peace through his blood, Shed on the cross. Creator and Savior. Creation and the cross. Inextricably linked. Inextricably linked in Jesus Christ. You can't divide who Jesus Christ is and the roles he plays. Let me end with this. I suppose the the long and short of Psalm 147 is simply this. We worship a remarkable God. And this remarkable God, we need him. We need him. We need him with his many hats, in his many roles, for his many provisions. We need him to create and sustain, we need him to heal and restore. We need him to direct and command. We need him to rule and to judge. We need him to provide rain and send seasons. But it's okay if he doesn't send winter anytime soon. I'm I'm okay with this, but eventually we'll need him to, right? We need him to give food and grant sustenance. We need him to keep us and protect us. We need him to rescue us and save us. We need him for all these roles and for all these reasons. And so what remains then for us in this whole equation is to acknowledge our need before him and trust in his ability to provide. So let's face it, as as humans, I'm speaking maybe only for myself here, but as humans who are so easily attracted to ideas of self-reliance, as humans so prone to delusions of self-sufficiency, acknowledging our need and trusting his ability to provide, it's not our natural inclination, is it? It's not our go-to approach. Well, at least it's not mine. Maybe you are all so sanctified. Right? Raise your hand if you're super sanctified. Mm-hmm. Right? Right? It's not our natural inclination, I think, as human beings, right? Not our normal approach. We're far more likely to seek our ultimate salvation in the wealth we create or in the safety nets we secure, rather than in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're far more likely to depend on our power, our strength, our cunning, our clever for our ultimate support our ultimate sustenance, rather than in God's providence. And God, of course, after laughing at us in this respect, that we think we're completely self-sufficient, right? um, He's clearly not impressed. Clearly not impressed with such an approach, such a human approach. And if we go back to verses 10 and 11, some of you might have noted that I skipped over those. If we go back to 10 and 11 of Psalm 147, we read this about God and his attitude toward human attitudes of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. I'm at verse 10 and 11 here, I think. His pleasure, God's pleasure, is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. So that's kind of an maybe outdated phrase for us as far as understanding Uh, With your permission, I'm just going to put a little addendum in there. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior, nor in the brains of the physicist, the hands of a surgeon, the feet of a footballer. And then back to verse 11. No, the Lord delights in those who fear him and put their hope in his unfailing love. So, right there, we learn that Psalm 147 carries a message of both correction and comfort. For those who are here tonight, who in our heart of hearts believe that we are the ultimate providers of our needs, that we are the ultimate shapers of our outcomes, that we are the ultimate sources of our salvation, God's saying, not so, not so. I am, I am in my many roles. I am God and you are not. And this is something you need to acknowledge. You have to put your ultimate hope, not in yourself, but my unfailing love. Put your ultimate hope, not in your finite powers, but in me. I'm God, you're not. But it's not only a psalm of correction, of course. It's also a psalm of comfort. Many of us come here perhaps tonight knowing that, knowing only too well our needs. We don't really have to think hard about what we need right now. We know, and it's right here, our needs. And we acknowledge full well our dependence on God. Some of us perhaps are grieving loss tonight. Some of us perhaps struggling in a relationship. Some of us facing uncertainty. Some of us fearing failure. Some of us compromised by illness. Some of us crushed by loneliness. Some of us worn out because of all the hats we're wearing. So for us then, I would like to suggest that Psalm 147 is a great reminder a reminder that as creator and sustainer of the universe, a reminder that as restorer and savior of his people, God in his many roles can and will provide. He will provide for us what we ultimately need. His provision might not always match our expectation, of course, I should add that, right? His provision might not always match our expectation of what we ultimately need in any given situation, but his provision will certainly ensure our salvation, our salvation through Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord. So what remains for us then is to trust in this, to trust that this is so, and to believe that it can be. Verse 11 again. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to to delight in you as you delight in us and put us and help us to put our unf- our our hope In your unfailing love, through your spirit, help us to depend and rely on you and not ourselves. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.